Well, wonderful. Um, some very wonderful words there, uh, which we'll be looking at um, as we go through um, our um, uh, sermon today, as we look at Exodus 20. For those of you who have Bibles, please do open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. This is the next uh, um, installment of our series through uh, the book of Exodus, and uh, it will be great um, um, if you could have them there. The, the, for those of you who don't, the words will come up on your screen, and I'm just going to read um, Exodus 20, verses 1 uh, to 21 um, for us. They should come up on the screen in front of you. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 21. <clears throat> and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Well, before we look at that, let me, read, let me lead us in a time of prayer again. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you that it is good for us. It does us good. Thank you that your word is given uh, for our best interests at heart. Father God, I pray that you be with us as we tackle uh, this, this wonderful, big and difficult subject of the law. Father God, may it be that we find in it real beauty, real grace, and may it implant in us a desire to want to follow and love uh, the living Lord Jesus Christ, in whom this law, um, 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 who is revealed through this law, and who has fulfilled this law. Father God, we praise you for our time together. Be with us, we pray in your strong name. Amen. Well, uh, as I say, welcome back uh, to the book of Exodus. Today, we are looking at one of the most famous lists, I think, in the whole world. Some of the most famous rules 
in the world, the Ten Commandments. And before we get there, it's very important to see where we have come from. Um, God has saved the Israelites, hasn't he, um, from death and slavery. He has enacted his power over their captors by bringing plagues and overpowering Pharaoh. He finally lets them go, and, and then God parts the Red Sea for them as Pharaoh changes his mind and tries to, to kill them. The Egyptians are destroyed, Israel is free, and they are now in the wilderness. But it's not a great experience for them in the wilderness. They are put through a boot camp. They are tested uh, by God, and they grumble, and they groan. They, they daily forget the God who has saved them, while he lovingly provides everything uh, for their need. Bread from heaven, meat in the form of quail, water from a rock, He is testing his people in the wilderness experience to trust him. And even though they fail to, he lovingly provides for them day after day. And then last week, if you remember, we've approached this mountain, the first big, massive marker for the people of God in their journey through the wilderness, that the mountain of God, this big, quaking, spitting mountain, which invites us to see the power of God and rightly fear him. As we see him who is holy, and glorious and mighty, but also as we see a God who we are in relationship with. And as we looked at last week, as we ended that that reading with just now, we, we don't fear him in the wrong ways. He is on our side. He's on the side of his people. He's got them. He has us safe. And so I want to come to this powerful God who we rightly fear. And there is, in fact, no better way of seeing just how much this God is for his people than through what happens next, than through the giving by God of his Ten Commandments. And what a moment this is. And it's really important that we start with that summary as to where we are as we approach these commandments. And for those of you who maybe haven't heard last week's sermon, it's a good thing to, to, to go back and listen to. That's a, that's a good preamble to the law, to what is going on here. For that is, is a sign, these are a sign, these commandments, of how God cares for and loves his people. And that might come as a surprise to some of us this morning, because I would wager that for most people... Uh, Certainly, I I should think for for most non-Christians, even I think for a lot of Christians, the first word that jumps into our heads when we hear the Ten Commandments is rules. Rules that need to be kept and followed. Rules on which there is a lot riding in my keeping them. However, as we come to the Ten Commandments this morning, whether as Christians having perhaps not thought about the Ten Commandments in detail. For some of you who are listening, not Christians, and looking at them for the first time today, what I want to do this morning, and what is absolutely necessary for us to do, is to challenge that way of thinking, that the Ten Commandments is just a list of rules. For seeing the Ten Commandments in that way totally misses the point. For as I hope we see today, they teach us so more than that. They they are so much more than just a list of rules. And so without any more introduction, we're going to go straight in. For the first of four things that we see this morning about the Ten Commandments is that they are, firstly, pointing to a glorious God. The Ten Commandments point to a glorious God. You see, as we said last week, as we introduced these commandments by looking at the people of God coming around this mountain uh, from which God is speaking and delivering these commandments. Before God speaks to them, before requirements are laid on God's people, God wants his people to think about him. 
to think about what he has already done for them, for, to, for them to dwell on the relationship that he has already brought them into. That's what we read in verse 2 of chapter 20. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is everything we said last week. This is the contents, context of the Ten Commandments, requirements and law already given in loving, close, personal relationship. The people have done nothing to achieve or warrant rescue and safety, but he has rescued them regardless. They are his. Now, imagine being uh, the people of God back then. Think about the experience that the uh, average Hebrew has just been through. Just seven weeks ago, you were a slave in Egypt. You were brought through plagues, the Red Sea, the desert. You've been protected by a cloud in the day, by fire at night. You've been sustained by water from a rock and sweet bread that rains down on you and suicidal quail that wants to be captured for your food. And you have been carried on eagle's wings, sustained, saved. You've also just come through three days of washing as you stand terrified in front of a shaking mountain. And now finally your rescuer speaks to you personally. And the very first thing you hear is, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, first and foremost, the Lord wants his people to focus on him. The great I am, the Yahweh God. And in fact, the whole of Exodus has always been about God wanting us to focus on him, hasn't it? That's why Exodus is here in our Bibles. That's what we've been saying. So that you may know who I am, says the Lord again and again and again and again, page after page after page after page. So why should the Ten Commandments be any different? And as we see this, I am God revealed in this pages, so you see a God for reasons only known to himself who has set his love, his unmerited love, his undeserved and unrequited love on you, on his people, on this people. He just has. There's nothing special about the people that he rescues except for the fact that he chose to rescue them. And so as we move into the Ten Commandments themselves, the theme of Yahweh, the theme of the I am God being revealed continues. He still wants to talk about himself in a glorious way so that we may see who he is for us. And so in each commandment, we get tons of detail about who this God is. Let's start off with the first commandment, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Now that is so much more profound than we first realize. Consider again what the people of God have just come from. They've come from the land of Egypt. Egypt was littered with gods. We see that actually um, in, in a sentence um, 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 with the magicians as they're trying to do the plagues that Moses does. The Hebrews were saturated in paganism. There was Ra, uh, the sun god. There was none, the god of chaos. Shu, the god of the air. Sekhmet, another god of chaos. They seem to really like chaos. But in all these gods, Egypt doesn't have a, a rescues them from slavery sort of god. No one can do that but Yahweh. The true God, the living God, the I am God, the God who will, despite his people, redeem them and save them. They don't have that kind of God. The point of the first commandment then is, why would God's people want any other God before Yahweh? Only Yahweh is like that. Why would I go anywhere else? 
Think, however, of the gods of our time. Think of um, Allah or of Islam. He is someone that you can only access if you have kept an array of remarkably strict rules and regulations, whereby just breaking one of them is enough to cast you out of paradise. And even if you hadn't broken the rules, the, the, the final decision as to whether you get to eternity is genuinely dependent on the whim of Allah at the time of your meeting him. I used to meet up with a Muslim student as a CU staff worker, and I once asked him if he knew he was going to get into heaven, into paradise, and he said with genuine tears in his eyes, I will never know if I've done enough to honor Allah. And if there was any way I could know for certain, I would be the happiest man alive, the one most at peace. But it is impossible for me to know. I can only hope against hope that I have produced enough good to be weighed in my favor and for God to find me acceptable. Can you imagine the fear and the lack of assurance that that poor boy had? And that is because Islam doesn't have a carried you on eagle's wings kind of God. Hindus, in contrast, they believe in excess of 300 million gods bound to an ever-turning wheel of karma, the endless cycle of reincarnation that follows. No end, no rest, just hoping that the next life might be better. But again, there is no assurances. Secularism believes the god of the self, success, materialism, wealth, security, recognition, progress. But again, no guarantees that you'll achieve any of them before you die. And if you do, there are no assurances that you won't lose it all in a heartbeat. DNA neither knows nor cares. You are lucky or you are just unlucky, says Richard Dawkins. And there is nothing that you can do about it. You see, the truth is, and, and we are unashamed of saying this lovingly, that there is no religion other than Christianity, however people would like to argue otherwise, that reveals a truly unique God. A God who graciously and freely brings people to himself because of nothing that they have done. Only Yahweh is that sort of God. And that's just the first commandment. If you can't go through all of them, have a look at the second, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth below. You shall not bow down and serve them. Here we are told that our God is not to be reduced to a material substance. We, we, we can't represent him by picture or material image. Of course, he reveals himself in his son. We see him become a real person, but he does so describing that in his words. We are not to build anything ourselves that represent God. God will reveal himself himself. We are not meant to be God revealers. He reveals God himself. He came down with stone tablets with words written on them. And his words are so important. That's why he's, he's talking about this. He wants us to be involved in his words. Um, and Moses didn't come down with a picture of God. He came down with the characteristics of God written down in words. Now, I can't worship stone or something that is made. I can't worship money. I can't try and build other gods in other ways. It is the God of the Bible and nothing else. It is the God revealed in Jesus Christ through the final word of God the Father and nothing else. And that is a wonderful thing for God to do. He wants us to know the truth. He doesn't want to be um, detracted by other things that we might fall in love with. Furthermore, it reveals that he's a communicative God. He wants to reveal to us who he is through his words that he has given for us. 
You see, as God's people stood before this mountain, trembling before this God, they were being given an executive summary by God himself and telling them what he was like in his own words. So to his words I go, not to images uh, that claim to represent him, that claim to offer salvation, whether that's money or success or other gods or idols that I make. I will represent myself, says Yahweh, I will represent myself through my words. I will represent myself fully through my son. I will do that. I will do that alone. And the other commandments are full of more details about him. We can't go through them all, as I said, but just whiz through with them with me. Commandment four, he is a God who is deeply committed to his, giving his people rest, real rest, managed rest, the kind of rest that he had when he created the earth every week. He's totally the opposite to the gods of Pharaoh in that sense, who didn't give rest, but who enslaved the people. He is a God, commandment five, who loves families working well together, desires them to last a long, long time in perfect harmony. What we wouldn't give for that to be true for us all this morning as we wrestled with our children. Commandment six. He is a God that has such a high view of humanity, even though, remember, we offer nothing to him, that he detests murder. He detests the taking of a life. He hates adultery, coveting, lying. You see, when we come to the Ten Commandments, we don't just see rules. We're meant to be able to look at the commandments and say, wow, what a glorious God. What I wouldn't give to know a God like that, especially in the light of all the other gods around me that promise so much and deliver so little. He is a God like no other. Sometime over the next week, I challenge you to put this into practice. Go through each commandment, meditate on each one, ask yourself what it teaches you about Yahweh. And if you're not a Christian, ask if that isn't the kind of God that you would love to know. The Ten Commandments are not just rules. They are a mirror to a good God who we would only ever deeply love to get to know. Secondly, however, the law not only shows us a glorious God, but the law is also a far-reaching promise. Secondly, the law is far-reaching promise. You see, each command actually also acts as a promise. And honestly, for me, this was mind-blowing when I um, was showing this as a student. For, for, for the, the repeated refrain of you shall, you shall not, is, is not a condemnatory accusation against his people. Rather, it is a description of a promise of what God's people will be and will become. Have a look at the commandments again in the light of this. As my people, says God, who I have saved already on eagles' wings, that now means that one day, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Isn't that a wonderful thing? As in you just won't. It's a promise. Isn't that great? As my people, whom I saved out of the waters of judgment, that now means that, that one day you shall not take the, Lord, the name of the Lord God in vain ever. It means that one day, verse 16, you'll never lie. One day, verse 17, you, you, you won't covet. You shall not covet. Isn't that great? Can you see there that they're also positive promises? As my redeemed people, it is now possible for you to live no longer doing these things. Sin is no longer inevitable. 
Indeed, one day you will perfectly do these things. You will be made holy and you shall keep these promises perfectly. Because, you see, says God, you will be like me. You will be holy as I am holy. You shall be perfect as I am perfect. One day you will be the human being I intend you to be. One day you will be a true humanity, a true perfect humanity, says Yahweh to his people. And is that not what we're aiming for all the way through the Bible since the fall? Perfection? Eternity, sinlessness, no longer struggling, the resurrection, in other words. We're not there yet. The law tells us we're not there yet. We're going to be looking at that later. But can you see how in the law I get to see the beauty of what I will become when I am finally made new? Uh, many of us know Willie Philip from the Troll, and he wrote an excellent paper in his Proc Trust days on the law. It's called the Law of Promise. And he says this. He says, you see, you see the, the law is not the vain wish of a God who is hoping for the best from his people, but doubt whether he can really accomplish anything much through them. The law is instead the promise of a future reality from the God who alone is God in heaven above the earth and whose promises never fail or fall to the ground. The people of this holy God shall be made holy. How can he be satisfied with anything else? Doesn't that make your heart race? That's incredible. This is how God plans us to be perfect, holy, and so this morning, if you feel the unbelievable weight of battling and struggling with sin, if you feel the guilt that attaches to your heart when you fail time and time again, don't fear the law. See the promises in it. See the way of living that will be a reality for you in the future. See the law that is already given to you in a one relationship which will bring you home in perfection and glory by a God who has carried you on eagle's wings and who will not let you fall. The law is glorious promise. And we know that this is what the Ten Commandments is doing because back in chapter 19 last week, God said as much, verse 5, you shall be, again, the same words of the commandments, you shall, shall not. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall, that's a promise. And the Ten Commandments is point for point exactly what that holy people will look like. How this kingdom of promised people will look like as a group of individuals. But for God's people then, of course, if they were under any illusion that this perfect experience will be just around the corner, then they're to be greatly disappointed, aren't they? Indeed, even we don't see that reality yet. We're not in perfection. We do struggle with sin. We're not perfect. We're not holy. And that is because the Lord hasn't consummated this promise fully yet. And he has good reason not to. And one of those reasons is clear as we look at the purpose again of Exodus. Remember, what is Exodus here for? So that you may know that I am the Lord, he says to Pharaoh, to Moses, and to the nations. God is revealing himself through his own words and his actions so that his people and the rest of the world and us here today have real time to come to know that he is the Lord. 
You see, this promise has not yet been fulfilled, not fully. God's people, we will see through the ages, are slowly and surely getting to know the Lord God for themselves. And that is the same for us as we get to know this God today. The Lord God is teaching us about himself. And one day we will know him. One day we shall be the people that he intends perfectly. One day God will himself dwell with us fully. But not yet. God's people need to wait as God brings more and more people to himself every single day. You see, for the Israelites on the mountain, this would have been quite a wonderful description of how life one day will really be. You just imagine what you've been brought through, that the God who has rescued you, speaking to you perfectly, a promise to really hold on to, the gracious and glorious God who has brought me to himself, as he describes this beautiful description of what I will be like as his people. Imagine as well what type of world this would be like if we all lived this way, where all of us serve and worship Yahweh perfectly, a world where there is perfect rest, a world where there is perfect work, a world where there will be truly perfect love for each other as we love ourselves. That is a world to meditate on, isn't it? As we think about the new creation and about heaven. And outside of Jesus himself, it is the Ten Commandments where we see the eternal promise of God's kingdom and his people laid out systematically for our deep assurance. I genuinely asked a child the other day who told me that he really enjoyed uh, reading the Ten Commandments. And I, and I asked him, why is that? And he said, because it tells me what I want to be like. Isn't that an incredible description? I couldn't believe it. You will be my perfect people, says God, through his law. So can you see that the Ten Commandments is much more than a list of rules? We've already seen point one, that they point us to a glorious God who I would desperately want to know. And point two, they reveal the heart of God's promise to us as his people as to what we will fully be like. And so point three, this now brings us correctly orientated to the requirement of obedience. And please hear me carefully, that that obedience on the back of these two points flows as a wonderful privilege. For thirdly, the law is therefore a privilege to obey. You see, um, um, once we get to the law, we see that the law becomes a beautiful thing for us under all these ways. Obedience becomes a beautiful thing, not a condemning thing. And obedience as a consequence is something we should never be ashamed of. And this is really important. Remember chapter 19, verse 4 last week. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. The redemption from slavery has already taken place. And then verse 5 follows. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. As a redeemed people in relationship, they have the responsibility to obey, do the people of God. Not in order for them to be redeemed. That's already happened. But in order to enjoy this relationship that they have been redeemed into to be God's treasured possession, to be the people God has designed them to be. The point is, is, of course, that obedience to this kind of God 
the God who is so glorious, the God who has given us this incredible promise. Well, obedience to this kind of God is not a chore, but an incredible privilege. And in fact, this kind of obedience is something that we all live in every single day without question. Any of us who have had the deep privilege of having been brought up in a loving family will relate to this. Our parents brought us up. They literally gave us life and everything that we need to survive, to stand on our own two feet when we could do nothing. And some of that process of growing up with my family was me having to obey some rules. They were never ever written down, not, not that I remember, but they included things like, don't annoy your sister. But when I did do that, when I did break that rule, I fell out with my sister and I fell out with my parents. That was just the true and natural outcome. We were at loggerheads with each other. Things just didn't feel great. I felt uncomfortable knowing I'd not done what I was meant to. There was trouble, there were consequences, rightly. But when I got on well with my sister, when I obeyed that rule, then I didn't fall out with my sister or my parents. And our relationship was good and we got on well and, and life was much better for it. Coming home wasn't awkward. Sitting at the dinner table wasn't tense. You see, in a loving family context, keeping rules in a family like that was a deep privilege because I knew my parents had my best interests at heart and they knew what was best for me. And I actually knew that they were right. And I knew that they loved me in giving all these laws and they still loved me when I broke them. When I broke the rules, I just felt awful, life was harder. They were protecting me from that. Being a part of my family included rules, and I loved my parents for it. Furthermore, when I did break those rules, daily, there was no question of my being a part of that family. No question at all. There was no question of me being able to experience everything that my family did, to be able to enjoy the blessings that my father brought home. And so being a part of the family in obedience was a joy. In every single one of your families, there are rules. I've heard you discuss them with me. I've heard you enforce them on a Sunday with your kids when we used to meet together. I've heard about your heartbreak when your children don't keep them. And yet you will keep maintaining those rules because you love them. You love your children. You deeply want them to be safe. And your family's rules will keep them safe. And when they are broken, it is hard. And it brings you grief and sadness. But there is no question as to your love for them. They are still a part of your loving family. You love them as much on the day when they break all the rules, as much as you love them on the day that they kept them all. Can you see? Those rules don't make me the family member. I'm already safe in the family forever, but they do enable me to go well with my family. And as we've said, even though we've had that point clearly made in chapter 19, we also get exactly the same point in chapter 20, verse 2, because God knows we're going to miss it. In fact, some people call chapter 20, verse 2, commandment zero, because without verse 2, the commandments make no sense. We have got to get our head around verse 2 before we get to verse 3. I am the Lord your God who has already saved you. That's the introduction to this list of rules. Imagine the people of God hearing that being spoken over them for the first time and, and their reaction must be yes. Or it should be yes. Thank Yahweh. 
What a privilege to obey him. Here is the one who brought us up out of slavery. Look at the fatherly concern and care he showed me, carried me on eagle's wings through all my moanings and my whinging. Of course I want to obey a God like that. Of course I want to be a part of that family. How wonderful when he wants me to enjoy life so much after having done nothing to be given life at all. The Psalms are packed with this language. Psalm 19, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Sweeter are they also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. And by them is your servant warned. In them is great reward. The psalmist is describing what he sees. He is describing the privilege of deep obedience. I love the law, says the psalmist. It is a lamp unto my feet. It is a light unto my path. It doesn't push me away from it. It draws me to it as a light in the darkness, as it draws me to the goodness of God who has my best interests at heart, as it draws me to the desire to be like what the law points to in the future, what I eventually will become in real promise. And so I desire to be obedient to it because it is given for my good, and I am allowed to live that life out now. It is for my joy, for my happiness, and for my contentment. And it reminds me that no matter how often I break them, no matter how many times I break the same one, I am never not saved. I am never not a part of this covenant family. I will always be brought back. I will always make it home. In the law, I am assured of course I would want to obey it. And that is a direct line to us, the deep, deep privilege of obeying a deeply beautiful law that reveals God and reveals who I am promised to be like and which has my very best interests at heart, a life I am now allowed to live. However, just before we move on, as some people have asked me this week, what do we actually obey today by way of the Ten Commandments? What do the Ten Commandments look like with our New Testament goggles on, if you like? Well, quickly, two things. We do have to remember 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So in that sense, the Ten Commandments being scripture, they lead directly to us. They are applicable to us. And much of the application that we sat in this morning is a straight line for us, as we've seen. But secondly, and I wish we had more time to look at this, and feel free to come back on to me this uh, over the course of the next few weeks, but we have to understand that the Ten Commandments are a part of the Mosaic Covenant, and that is not our covenant this morning. For the truth is, we as New Testament readers have a new covenant, a better covenant, we read in the New Testament, a newer one, a different one, we therefore need to read the Ten Commandments with New Testament eyes. You see, Yahweh spoke the Ten Commandments from on top of the mountain, and in the New Testament we see Jesus teaching the same law on top of a mountain, the Sermon on the Mount. Reteaching all of the commandments that are here in Exodus 20 and extrapolating them as to what they look like today. But the difference with Jesus telling of the law is that within a few years of teaching his disciples the same rules of the kingdom, Jesus ends up on a cross. As he dies the death of deep redemption to redeem and save his people. And in doing so, he says to his disciples, look at me, and if you love me, you will obey me. 
You see, obedience to that sort of God, the God of glory, the Yahweh God, the God of creation and eternity, who, who stooped down into our experience and gave himself up to death on the cross, for me, well, of course I would want to obey him. Of course I want to love that kind of God. That type of obedience is a privilege. And as I grow in my love for Jesus more, so I grow in my desire to want to obey him. So I become more like him. So I find my relationship with him blossoming. So I find myself sweetly tasting, as the psalmist says, the promises of future perfection now. You see, Jesus told us all the commands we needed for life to go well already in this one relationship with him. A relationship he won on the cross by nothing that we have done. In doing so, he's like a, a perfect doctor, if you like, with a cabinet full of medicine, each bottle a command for our own good, for our own enjoyment of this relationship that he bled and died for. Except it's no longer in stone, it's now in Christ. We see them represented in him. He is telling them, God himself in human flesh. And each one of these commands is that, he, that Jesus goes through is an expansion of the principles of the Ten Commandments. Let's look at the Ten Commandments again, and we see, don't we, that the first four commandments in Exodus 20, they're all about God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make gods like me. You shan't take um, my name in vain, and you, sh you shall also obey me, but by having rest for my good. They're all about God. And the last six are all about loving people. Don't murder someone else. Don't lie to someone. Don't covet someone else. And that is how Jesus summarizes the law, isn't it? The first and great commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, says Jesus. Those are the, the first four commandments covered. In other words, command one, love God. And secondly, the second great command, love each other as you love yourself. Those are the last six. That's the summary of the entire law. Love God and love each other. And under this kind of God, under the Lord Jesus Christ, who dies for me, who, who, who breaks his body for my sake, why would I not want to love him and love other people? If I'm doing both those things, then the law is being obeyed. My relationship with God and with other people grows and blossoms. In both those areas, it is a wonderful privilege. It is a wonderful responsibility that I am allowed to take on myself as Jesus, who died for me, encourages and commands us to follow the doctor's instructions, his rules. And that is a deep privilege because I know this doctor really well. I know what he's done for me. I know the lengths he went through to make me better. I know he has my best interests at heart, that he wants to see me grow, not stagnate and become mired in unhappiness and pain. Can you see how beautiful obedience is? It's not a dirty word as we live under the gospel that says we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works alone, and in the atoning sacrifice of Christ alone. Oh, to be given the opportunity to grow. This side of eternity is astonishing. Oh, to have a taste of what eternity will look like, what it will feel like, even imperfectly, what a privilege it is to love and obey this kind of God. However, as much as we understand that, we do still have a fatal problem with the law, don't we, if we just leave it there? For the New Testament does still use the law to set a standard for me in terms of my relationship with God, doesn't it? 
And that is a reality from which we cannot duck, for the standard the law sets is very high indeed. The bar in the New Testament is, in fact, perfection, isn't it? Jesus makes that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Peter makes it clear in his letters. As he who called you is holy, be holy like him in all of your conduct. You see, to be in God's kingdom is to be holy. And to be holy means we have to be like God, the standard of perfection. We have to be like God is. Nothing less than that will do. Have you noticed that that's the standard to be perfect? The standard is not to try harder, Christian. Do your best, Christian. Keep it up, Christian. No, it's please be perfect. Well, we know, don't we, that that standard is never going to be met. That test is never going to be passed. That goal is never going to be achieved. No matter how hard I try or how privileged or how beautiful I find the law, I will always fail. And this leads us on to our last point. For fourthly and finally, the law is a test that I will fail. The Israelites were given these laws as a privilege, and they see it as such. Back in 19 verse 8, they declare everything that the law says we will do because of what he has done for us. But within 12 chapters, they miserably fail this test. They don't do everything the law says to such an extent that they bow down to a golden calf in a few weeks' time and they reject wholesale the God who saved them. The people of God consistently show their inability to keep the law. And this is repeated throughout Israel's history as it is for us today. We are given an impossibly high standard, a standard which is unobtainable. We might think, what a privilege. We might think, what a beautiful way to live, and that is right. But no sooner do I take the standard of the New Testament that the law sets than I see how miserably I fail. And it's even worse than we think. For I read the Ten Commandments and I see, you shall not murder, and I think that's okay. I've not murdered anyone. Uh, I'm not likely to. I'm not that kind of guy. At least I've kept that law. Maybe I can get there. But remember, I need to see it through the New Testament eyes. I need to see the law through the eyes of Jesus. And what does Jesus say of the Ten Commandments? Well, in Matthew 5.21, the Sermon on the Mount, I see Jesus raises the bar unbelievably. He picks up this command and says, If anyone so much as looks angrily at his brother, he is murdering them in their hearts and eligible for full judgment. For in that moment, it is as if I were wishing they weren't there. In that moment, it is as if I'm saying to my brother, you're dead to me. Well, there is no way I've passed that bar. I'd broken that law about at the age of six months. And I'm pretty sure I might have well failed it this morning. And I fell on that kind of standard every day. I probably will tomorrow, even subconsciously, even if I'm really trying not to. You see, God's people failed terribly at God's mountain, and we gawp, how could they, after everything that God has done for them? But so do we, every single day, cataclysmically failing. Our failure to meet God's standard is ever before us, isn't it? Every single one of us, all the time, we're never out of the knowledge that I failed God's perfect standard. And the question the Bible draws out of us is, what on earth can be done for us? Who can save me from this body of death that literally cannot keep the law, says Paul in Romans, when I really, really try to? Well, this doesn't lead us to despair. Not when we've considered all the points that we've already seen in the Ten Commandments. 
For to the people of God then, they have to go back to the God who has redeemed them, who saved them, who brought them out of slavery. For the God who promised them perfection. And so for us now, we really need to go back to the God who stooped so low so as to die on a cross for us. For here is the raw and powerful weight of the death of Jesus on the cross. Right here. When I look at my pitiable state, when I look at the law, I find I so desperately need help. I need someone who will somehow keep, help me keep this law perfectly. And that is when I am drawn in deep repentance and sorrow and guilt to the Lord Jesus Christ. The God of the Old Testament, clothed in flesh, living under the law perfectly, suffering under the weight of human grief and illness and pain and horror. When I look at this carpenter from Nazareth, cruelly subjected to beatings and hatred, ultimately I see him going to a cross where he is murdered slowly over the course of three hours. And as he does, his perfect law-keeping body takes on all of my unlawfulness. All of my broken promises, every single commandment that lies derelict and shattered in my past, present and future attempts to keep them. And they are all laid on him. And so the punishment that I deserved for being an unholy lawbreaker is taken by Jesus. He dies. I don't. The God of glory the God of the Old Testament, the God of the mountain, the God of creation, the God of the plagues and fire and cloud and bread from heaven and water from the rock, the God of the parting of the Red Sea. This God we now see dead, slain, pierced, struck, whipped, tortured, spat on, humiliated, abandoned. And he went through all of that for me. And all because I could never perfectly keep the law. And I can do nothing about that. Except come to him in total repentance. Acknowledging to him that I really am a lawbreaker every single day. Understanding that I need his perfection, his help, if I have any chance of being made right with God. And being in relationship with him. Can you see how very seriously God takes our sin? That is the holy fear that is delivered on this mountain that we are rightly faced with. Just what my sin means to this almighty holy God, it is astonishing and he will do something about it. But as we see that, so we see the God who has done everything necessary for the cross. As he actually takes the punishment of my inability to meet that standard on himself. He becomes the lawbreaker so that I may be made into a law keeper. He became sin for us, so that I might be set free. Praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord God of eternity, who dies that we might live, who dies that we might be made perfect, who kept the law when we couldn't and when we can't, who rose again from the dead so that I could be risen to him with endless life, where his promises for me seen in the law will come to pass where the God I see in the law, I will finally see face to face. But here's the thing as I close, and this is really important, because I want to leave us today with a full, rounded, full-bodied view of the law of the Ten Commandments. Because as your minister and your friend, I am wholly concerned with your enjoyment of this relationship with this God that he has won for you on the cross, who kept for you a law that you could only ever fail in. 
And so I want to remind you and come back to the beauty of obedience in the light of this salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the intoning work of Jesus Christ alone. For if I only see the law as something I can't possibly keep that Jesus has got covered, if I only see it in that way, then I'll just be tempted to grow to disregard it. For it pushes me away from the law. It becomes a wholly negative thing that I hate. It doesn't inform my decision-making, and so I slip into being comfortable with sin. I slip into what's called antinomianism, living how I like, because the law was never meant to be kept by me anyway, so why bother with it? And with that way of thinking, if I only see the law like that, then I've missed the beauty of it. I've missed the beauty that I want to keep, the the beauty that I want to grow in, that I want to obey, something that is a privilege to, something God uses to grow me in happy, rejoicing relationship with him and his family for eternity. It is something that points me to how wonderful Jesus uh, Jesus is, the one who kept it perfectly. You see, if I don't see it that way, then Jesus merely becomes a tool for my salvation. If I only see it as something I can't keep, Jesus is just merely a tool and nothing else. He's helpful, but not really a real part of my life. And so my relationship with Jesus is all the poorer for it. He becomes someone who I grumble at because my life doesn't look great, because I am at odds with him and I am at odds with others. If I have called on Jesus for my salvation in repentance and faith, I am very much saved. No amount of law-keeping or law-breaking will ever change that. But I'm just not enjoying or growing in the life the law allows me to live as I grow in Christ in this relationship. To that person, I say the law is beautiful, given for our good and for our enjoyment. In Christ, it does not condemn and so, and in so being, the law doesn't point away from itself to Christ. It points to Christ wrapped up in it. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, not to just keep it. I've come to embody all of the promises within it. And so the law becomes a beautiful thing. And because of that, it means I can be serious about sin without worry. I can be serious with wanting to change my behavior without any fear of failure or being knocked out of God's family. Because Christ has already made me right with God as I'm clothed in his law-keeping righteousness. And from the other end of the spectrum, if I see the law as something that I have to work at and attain to, if I only see the law as a list of rules, a requirement, something which makes me more saved or more perfect in God's eyes or more lovable, a ladder by which I have to climb to reach God, then I will also grow to hate it and disregard it. That means I become a legalist. And the law just stares at me like, like the condemning brutal tablets of stone on which it was written. And, and the, the Yahweh God in Jesus isn't someone to be loved or thanked, but someone to begrudge and battle with. And that's because I live with the guilt that the law builds up. It condemns me every day and I can never do enough to unseat that guilt. I'm just never good enough for God, I find. I've tried so hard. What's the point? The law becomes an ugly noose around my neck and a vindictive one at that. And I'll grow bitter to the law, bitter to the God who gives it. I do not see its beauty. I do not see its driving me to the God in Christ who has done everything for my salvation. I do not see it as a way to live which is for my benefit, for my growth, and not for my condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ.
so the law is beautiful. And to that person, I say exactly the same as I would to the other. The law is beautiful, given for our good and for our enjoyment of being in relationship with him. In Christ, the law does not condemn. To those of us who are not Christians here today, here's the thing about Christianity. There is nothing you need to do or get yourself right enough with in order to come to Christ. It is all about Christ and Christ alone. All you need to do is acknowledge before him today that you are a lawbreaker and that he is the mighty law keeper and to say sorry and repent for that and to ask that his atoning sacrifice covering you, it will cover you this morning in order to make you perfect in God's sight for eternity. Upon that happening, you are his and nothing will take you away from his love. It is by grace you have been saved, says Paul in Ephesians, and not by works, so that you may never boast. It is all down to Jesus. But he will never leave you stagnant. He has promised never to leave you or forsake you. He has promised in the law that you will be made more like him, as he will, by his spirit, bring about an awakening to his way of living, which radiates the gospel, which produces a greater love for others, which looks more like Christ. And even if it's not seen as we would love to see it, it will be perfected in reality in the future. For the Christian here, the same applies. You are being made more daily into the person Christ wants. That's a gospel promise. Even if you feel that growth is creakingly slow or seemingly non-existent or sometimes often going backwards. As you look back over a lifetime, you are being kept and grown in Christ. If not seen measurably now, you will see it in eternity perfectly. For those of us here who may be struggling with assurance, or to those of us who are struggling unbearably with sin, who feel it is just not true that I'm making any progress in the Christian life, that I really have sinned once too many times. Well, the Bible says that's just not possible. You must know the bedrock gospel truth that he already has you. He will not let you go. You are assured for eternity, even if you're at the end of yourself, when you feel that there is no good left, you're driven to distraction by it. You need to know that Christ has you, that Christ has it all covered. He doesn't want you despairing. He wants you clinging to him. And he wants you boldly entering his presence with confidence, not in your works or in your lack of them, but in Christ's perfection. It's not about trying harder or doing more or being better. It's actually about being perfect, which means it is only about being in Christ, coming to him in repentance and faith. The Christian life is all about Christ. It's all centred on Christ. It's all driven through Christ. It's all started in Christ. It's all one in Christ. It's all completed in Christ. It's all maintained in Christ. The whole of the law is pointed to and fulfilled in Christ. Christ has the first and final word. And so as the hymn says, as we close, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because my sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father God, thank you 
so much for your goodness in your word to us this morning. Thank you so much for the promises that we see in your word. Thank you so much for the God of glory that we see in uh, the Ten Commandments. Thank you so much for what we are promised in your law. Thank you so much that the law gives us real assurance that God has our best interests at heart, that it is something that we would only love to obey as we strive to live more like you, to be serious with sin, and knowing that when we fail every single day, we are saved and safe in Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we are saved by grace alone, through every single act that Jesus does, through nothing that we have done. And thank you that we are now allowed to be set out, to be able to live the people as he intends, imperfectly, waiting and desiring for that perfection upon our resurrection. Father God, thank you so much for the gospel this morning. Help us to rest in your grace. Help us to rest in the joy of of being the people that you intend. And may we want to tell other people about this glorious God of eternity in Christ. We pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen.